Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We will begin reading in verse 12. Uh, Let's start by reading verses 12 through 20. And I've got seven points to make this morning. We'll move through them rapidly, I promise. No 20-minute points are in there. Seven points, and... uh, But we'll start with a a bit of an introduction into this section here after we read. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So, let's let's start by saying this. You could go to a church for your entire life, and never hear sermons about some of the things that we're going to cover here in uh, 1 Corinthians as we move through the book. Um, I don't mean that as a way to either lift myself up or put anyone, up, put anyone else down. I'm saying that to acknowledge that there are some uncomfortable, cultural, uh, culturally unacceptable things that come up in 1 Corinthians as you read through it. Now, you can do one of two things with that. You can ignore it, or you could approach it in a very discreet way um, as a body of believers. In other words, you could say, well, we're only going to talk about these things in in very small groups and segments. Or you can try to uh, teach it. If you're going to try to teach it, which clearly is our approach, then you have to ask yourself, to what extent and to what detail? There are certain aspects of sexual immorality that you simply cannot be explicit or detailed about when you stand in front of the congregation and teach. You shouldn't be. It would be wrong. It would be inappropriate. Um, However, I don't think that because we can acknowledge there's a wrong way to talk about this subject in a wide setting, that we can't talk about it at all. Like, we, we just have to ignore this teaching in the larger scope of the church. I don't think that's right either. So what we're going to attempt to do in each of these subjects is unfold what the Bible says in a way that acknowledges there are people of all ages and all backgrounds here on Sunday morning. We are not going to shy away from what the Bible says, but we are also not going to try to say everything that might possibly be said in every application. In other words... Uh, Tonight is a women's Bible study. Now, I don't think they're talking about this in a women's Bible study right now. But in a women's Bible study with adult, mature women gathering together to talk about the Word of God, there might be different practical applications that you would spend time on. Same for a men's Bible study, which would be next week. We're not going to, to do that here this morning. But what we are going to do is try to pay honor and respect in a wider setting to something that is very important to God. Uh, This topic comes up over and over again in the scriptures. And with that, I guess you're left with an option. You can either decide that God is just sort of a tyrannical God obsessed with human sexuality. The Christian's not going to believe that. Or 
you can infer from the frequency at which it's dealt with and read explicitly in what it says that this is a big deal for human beings. What we do in our lives privately is a big deal for us. It's a big deal in terms of the practical consequences that it will have in our day-to-day lives. It's a big deal in terms of the relationships that will be impacted and the way that we feel and the way that we will forever feel about those relationships. And probably most important and brought up most often in the scriptures, it's a big deal in terms of what it says about who we are before God and how we feel about God's authority in our lives. This says a lot about those things. So, seven points. We won't meditate very long on any one of them, I don't think. Point number one, which we will see from the first part of verse 12. Sexual sin does not help a person. Sexual sin does not help a person. If you can say that and say, well, yeah, okay, that's obvious. Good for you. That is not the message in the culture around us. Because what we call sexual sin is called healthy sexuality around the rest of the world, the Western world. Now, if we're going to call it healthy sexuality, uh, that implies it's good for us. It's helpful. And if you call it unhealthy sexuality, forget the word sinful, just call it unhealthy, then you are condemned or looked down upon or seen as a problem, a very judgmental person. When all we're actually trying to say, if we call something unhealthy, is that it's not helpful. This is counterintuitive because everything about human beings operates under the premise in terms of our natural instincts that what appeals to us will in some way satisfy us in a way that's helpful, right? People sin sexually because they find an appeal in it. Uh, The Bible calls this, you know, lust or desire or lust of the flesh, but basically it seems good to them. And things that seem good to us, we assume will be helpful, (laughs) will be good for our lives. Point number one, sexual sin does not help a person. You need not take my word for that. This is God's word. You need not take my word for any of these difficult subjects that we're going to read in 1 Corinthians. I will presume to say nothing, if I can help it, beyond what the text is teaching. It's not helpful. Just be informed then. That statement alone will put you at odds with the rest of the world when considering sexuality. Something as innocuous as saying that it is not helpful will make you the enemy. What does that mean? Does that mean we need to go around and try to hammer this into everyone's mind around us and, 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 and raise our hands up in disgust every time we find someone with a, a very worldly and secular view of this? No, I don't think that that's the solution. But the Christian, if anyone is going to be saved, the Christian is going to have to be clear and not cowardly when it comes to what sin is. A Christian who is too cowardly to call sin, sin, is a Christian who will find it impossible to convince someone that they are in need of a Savior. If you are too cowardly, when put to the test, to acknowledge, yes, my God says that that is wrong. My God says that this is sin, that this separates us from Him that this brings judgment into our lives. If you do not have the humble clarity and confidence to say that sort of thing, you will find it very difficult to convince someone that sin is seriousness is serious enough that they need to consider a savior. So, point number 1, Paul says, "All things are lawful for me." And this is about sexual immorality, but all things 
are not helpful. What does he mean by all things are lawful for him? In other words, there is no one behavior that is somehow going to disqualify me from salvation. That's what he means. Legalism is the idea that I will experience salvation and a relationship with God by keeping all of God's laws. Jesus has dealt away with that. No man can keep all of God's laws. What Paul is saying here is, there is no disqualifying thing for me. There is no thing with which I do it. I'm condemned to eternal hell. But that doesn't make everything permissible. That doesn't make everything helpful. Understood in the context here, simply because we are saved and forgiveness is available to us, if we reach out to God, if we, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The truth of that does not give us license to then pursue things that are destructive. Point number two. Sexual sin can become a powerful master. Paul writes, Again, fighting against legalism here, all things are lawful for me. I'm not trying to impose laws by which you must be saved upon you. That's what he's saying here. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Why does he say that? Because sexual sin can be a powerful master, an enslaving thing. Within just the last 20 years, um, the idea of a sexual addiction has become a popular phrase in society. I remember when this first really came into the, the realm of open discussion that this could be a, a sickness, as the world would describe it. Uh, I remember that um, there was a lot of debate about what an addiction actually was, and there was a lot of scientific mumbo-jumbo about, well, for something to be an addiction, there has to be a chemical dependency on it. So this can't be an addiction. And then the other side came back and said, well, there's a chemical reaction that happens in the brain. Uh, and, then, and back and forth and back and forth. All to say what, frankly, did not need to be said. Because it's obvious. Sexual sin can be a powerful master. It's obvious. You can call that a sickness if you want. I call it enslavement. Sin enslaves people. And sexual sin can and will do that. Paul is then saying, the paradigm with which I want you to think about sexual sin is not one where I am a lawyer giving you laws that you must keep. But the paradigm that I want you to think about this is, is, is this good or evil for a person? Is this helpful or not helpful? Is this, is this edifying or destructive? Not Legal or illegal. I don't want you to think in those terms. I want you to think in these terms. Okay? And secondly, should you be owned and mastered by anything to the extent of which you cannot turn away from it to follow God? If sin has such a powerful hold on your life that you cannot let go of it, even if it means separation from eternal God, you cannot let go of it because it is a master that must be served. You are in a, a terrible situation, an idolatrous situation. And Paul is determined, I am not going to be mastered by anything. I'm not going to be mastered even by my most private and personal desires. And he doesn't even speak to what those desires are because as we all know, sexual immorality can represent a very broad category of things. And he's saying, whatever those desires present themselves to be in a person's life, I am not going to be mastered by them. And be warned, because sexual sin can become a powerful master. Point number three. Verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord, 
and will also raise us up by his power. Point number three, the body matters, and so what we do with our body matters. There is a very pagan idea that sometimes infiltrates Christianity. And it's the idea that what we do in the material world, what we do with our physical bodies, what we do in the world around us doesn't really matter. What we should be focused on almost entirely is spiritual things. Spiritual things. Folks, you're supposed to serve God with all your, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we talk about the resurrection of the dead, which is the point Paul's making here, we're talking about a bodily resurrection. Your service to God is not some ethereal, cloudly, otherworldly-like service. It involves who you are right now. God created man in the flesh. He cares about the flesh. The flesh is not ulterior to God's motives. Your body is not ulterior to God's desires for your life. It's who you are. It is called in 1 Corinthians 15, the tent in which we currently dwell. It's part of you. What you do in the material world, what you do with your body matters. Now he brings up the discussion of food. Because again, he's trying very hard here not to make an argument against sexual immorality based on legalism. And there were those that Paul is wrestling with in the early church who were going around place to place and saying, look, if you want to serve God, you can't eat this food because the law in the Old Testament says you can't eat it. And Paul is making the argument that, look, Sexual immorality is not like the dietary laws of the Old Testament law. He's saying, this is not the same thing, okay? Yes, we've been freed from the law, but what you engage in sexually is not the same as whether or not you eat pork. That's what he's saying. And when you get to the heart of that, you really get to the heart of much of the argument for including sexual immorality in the church today as an acceptable behavior. Because the argument today for why sexual immorality should be included in the church is, well, although the Bible is pretty clear about sexual ethics, it was written a long time ago. And by the way, there are Old Testament laws about stuff like what you should eat that we don't adhere to today. So why should we adhere to Old Testament laws about sexuality. Paul is dealing with the same thing. When you encounter that argument, understand, there is nothing new under the sun. Paul's writing in the first century. <laughs> They're making the same argument. <laughs> and what he's saying is, there is a difference between the dietary ceremonial laws of the Old Testament by which Israel was meant to distinguish themselves from all the peoples around them and sexual behavior which is something sacred that you are engaging in with the body God has given you. What you eat is not the same as who you engage in sexual activity with. Two different spheres. Now, I think if we are honest with ourselves, every human being should be able to admit that. Every human being should understand that dietary rules are one thing, but this is entirely something else. I don't understand how anyone could maintain intellectual honesty and try to make these things equal to human beings because they're not. They're not. I guarantee every parent in the world cares way more about one than the other for their children. Now, they may say they care about both, but one is way more important to them when it comes to their kids than the other one. Way more important. Why? Because this is not rocket science. You do not need a degree in divinity to understand this. This is basic human stuff. And the Old Testament laws were important for setting Israel aside. Israel needed to be set aside. They were not supposed to be assimilated into the culture around them. They had to be set aside. The Messiah was going to come from them. 
They had to be protected and insulated from the pagan peoples because Jesus was going to be born from their line. But it is not the same as this. What the Bible says about sexual immorality is always meant to be universally applied. Not just to Israel. (laughs) Universally applied. And so Paul is reminding us something that we will really explore in 1 Corinthians 15. You may not know what 1 Corinthians 15 is. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. It talks to us about the resurrection. It's a great chapter. It's what we cling to as hope as Christians. And what he's saying here is, look, the resurrection is not some hope that we're going to go exist in some ghost-like form for all eternity. We believe in the actual bodily resurrection of the believers. Why? Because we believe Jesus actually rose from the grave and lives in a real glorified body. A body no longer under the weight of sin. A body no longer decaying to aging. A body no longer under the curse of this world. But a real body. Not some spirit-like ghost. This is important. And so it's a bit of a precursor for that. And we celebrated the resurrection of the Lord last week. So it should hit us powerfully when he says in the middle of verse 13, Now the body, food is for the stomach, you know, so the stomach is for food. You've got that organ to process food. But your body as a whole is not for sexual immorality. Whatever desires a person has, God has not given them the body that they have to just go rampantly fulfill those desires. That's not why you have a body. You've not been created and given a body to go behave like dogs. I, it drives me nuts when people make animal arguments to justify sexual sin. Uh, no. Animals were not created in the image of God. They're not sentient. <laughs> You were created with a purpose. And if you want to lie to yourself and pretend that your purpose is no more significant in this world than the pig or the ant that you step on or the bee that you swat away, if you want to pretend that your life can be thus devalued, I've got nothing for you. That's how the Nazis convinced a bunch of soldiers to exterminate people. They were able to convince them that some human life can be thus devalued, no more than animals. If that's what you're clinging to in order to maintain sexual freedom to do whatever you want, I've got nothing for you. I could not disagree with you more. I believe human life was made in the image of God. That's why you are a thinking person. That's why you are a feeling person. That's why you are a spiritual person. And that's why you will give an account of your life to God. Not the pig or Fred the dog. I have nothing against pets. I grew up with pets. Your pets are not going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. You will. And what will you give an account for? You will give an account for what you have done with the life, yes, the body that God has given you. The body is not for sexual immorality, but, and he's speaking to Christians here, for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. I love it that it's not a one-way street. Don't you? Can you appreciate that? Yes. God has created you and given you a body with which he expects you to glorify him. That's true. He's also given his son Jesus Christ to save your body. The body is for the Lord. And the Lord demonstrated he was given for the body. To save you. And I hear even now the echoes of Paul in chapter 15. Those of you who know what's there, right? If, if Jesus be not raised from the dead, then we are, of all people in the world, the most to be pitied. <laughs> because he died to bring us real eternal life, a real resurrection. And it says in verse 14, And God both raised up the Lord. Amen. Easter. Amen and will also raise us up by his power. You don't get to say that what you do with your body doesn't matter if you are counting on the resurrection of your body by the power of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? If you're willing to forfeit your hope in the resurrection to eternal life, 
Okay, do what you want with the body, I guess. But the Christian who has his faith in the eternal life presented at the resurrection of the body by way of Jesus Christ does not get to say, well, I can do whatever I want with my body. You don't get to do that. It can't be in one sense completely unimportant and in the other sense so important that Jesus Christ died to save you. So point number three, the body matters. And what you do with your body matters. Point number four, I love verses 15 and 16. And I think this might be the most important thing for parents to pay attention to here, okay? Point number four, Paul's argument is based on God's holiness and his commitment to us. All right, now, so he's told us we don't get to do whatever we want sexually. Okay, why? Now, any of you who've ever given a, 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 a rule to kids know that at some point, whether they verbalize it or not, the question is going to enter their mind, why? <laughs> I want to know why. Why? Because we are all people that think that we should stand as our own judge of whether or not something is a good idea. And even mom and dad get called into question on this at some point in time. You spent my whole life, mom and dad, telling me to brush my teeth, and now I want to know why was I supposed to brush my teeth. Every once in a while, you know, it's funny how science is always reinventing itself, or the application of science, I should say. It's always you spend your whole life, and they tell you that something's good for you, right? Like when I was a kid, I grew up and. You know, eggs were supposed to be healthy and milk was supposed to be healthy. And then somehow somebody does one study and they say, by the way, eggs and milk are awful for you, right? And so you <laughs> look at mom and say, you spent my whole life, you know, why did you do that? Because we all want to stand in judgment ultimately over whether or not something is truly a good idea. Here is Paul's argument. His argument against sexual immorality is based on God's holiness and his commitment to us. Now, here we go. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For, and here he quotes Genesis chapter 2. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Now, when God created Adam and Eve and he put them together, God created the institution of marriage and he defined it as the two shall become one flesh. This was before sin, okay? So human sexuality did not come into effect as a result of sin entering the world. Human sexuality is not evil, okay? God ordained it. He created a man and he created a woman to be put together and he put them together and he gave a purpose to it and he says, the two shall become one flesh. Calling upon that argument, he asks us to consider then the significance of our own sexual conduct in uniting ourselves to other people. And he says, how can you, being a member of the body of Christ, what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the church, the community of God's people. How can you, being united with God's people to Jesus Christ by faith, take that membership, if you will, and go and join it in sexual misconduct to someone who is unconcerned with God or what God has said. How can you, being a member of the body of Jesus Christ, somehow unite that membership to open an unconcerned sin in some form of weird triangle? How can you do that? On the one hand, you've devoted yourself to be united to Jesus by faith, and now you've devoted yourself physically to sexual license. He says this doesn't work. What's he doing? He is calling upon us to consider the holiness of God in that God, if he is holy, 
should not be represented in such a way with something that's profane and evil. How can you do that? How can you make that connection? How can you be okay with that? How could you even assume that that would be okay? It's not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? In other words, this flies in the face of what the world calls casual, casual behavior. And I, I know that this is uncomfortable with children in the room, and I'm trying really hard, okay? But, but this flies in the face of that. There is nothing casual about this with God. How could there be? How could you believe there is a God who created you and who loves you and who cares about you and he have total dis disregard, no concern whatsoever for you just going around and making a mockery of, of what he's created sexual behavior to represent, which is the union of a man and a woman for the life of the human race. <laughs> I mean, you think about it. You go back to the Garden of Eden, God could have chosen any way he wanted for children to be born. It didn't have to be this. <laughs> could, could have just, you know, the stork flies in and drops one off. I mean, he could have chosen anything he wanted. He didn't. He chose this. He chose for children to be born in the context of a man and a woman committing themselves together for the purpose, at least in some part, of generations of godly offspring. That's what he chose. Now, the generations of godly offspring falls apart pretty quick because in Genesis chapter 3, here comes sin. But this is a Genesis chapter 2 creation, not a Genesis chapter 3 creation. Sin is what we have done to this. Knowing that this is not just some thing, some function of our bodies, but something God designed with that purpose in mind, how, how could anybody think that this is just casual? And that's what Paul's saying. So, point number four. Paul's argument against this is based on God's holiness and his commitment to us. In other words, when I say his commitment to us, you can't merely check God at the door of the church and then go and do whatever you want out here as if he's not involved. No, he is with his people in all their conduct. And if he is holy, how could you take him into this kind of a setting and say, sit here and be with me, God. Be Emmanuel. Be God with us while I do this. Now, I'm, I'm belaboring this a little bit because I want, if you are a parent, you to consider something. I have found a huge temptation. And this is certainly how I was presented with all this growing up. To make the argument against sexual sin, sexual immorality, around the potential consequences of sexual sin in the material world that we live in. In other words, you tell someone, don't do that because there might be an unplanned event. And again, I'm trying to be very cautious here. Don't do this because you might get sick. Don't do this because there will be, there could be long-term practical repercussions. It's interesting, that's not Paul's argument. And I say that's interesting and something to think about because if that's the approach that you take, that's the, that's the, that's the approach that you take in talking about this. The thinking I fear will become so as long as I can avoid the long-term consequences, God might not be happy, but God's not happy when I tell a lie either. So it's really not that big of a deal. And I think even amongst us, there may be a quiet relief. Not everyone, I hope not any of us, but a quiet relief. Oh, this has been going on? Tell me that this isn't the situation. 
or tell me that let's get a test to make sure this hasn't happened and then relief. Now look, I'm not saying that relief is not somewhat appropriate when we think about the gravity of the repercussion of sin that could be in effect here because this is, not a, this is a serious thing. I'm not saying that relief isn't appropriate, but just understand there are worse things that can happen to a person than dealing with the practical consequences of sin on this earth. And at the very top of those worst things that can happen is standing before a holy God and being found guilty <laughs> of sin and faithlessness in His Son, Jesus Christ. So let's make sure while we have these discussions with children, with people who we've been entrusted with, let's be sure that we do not make this entirely about earthly consequences. Because, I mean, if we're all kind of honest here, we kind of pride ourselves in our ability to get out of earthly consequences. I mean, maybe you have that one person in your family who can't ever seem to get out of anything, but most of us, most of us, you know, are pretty confident. Yeah, I can, we can get away with it. You figure it, we'll figure it out. You make this about the holiness of God, that ain't, you ain't going to figure that out. Point number five. I like point number five. It's my kind of a sermon point. Point number five. Run. Run. That's a point. It's a point in a sermon on a Sunday morning. Run. Here it is, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Now, you know something is serious when the instruction regarding it in the Bible is run away, run away, flee. But this is the instruction of God's word. Don't play with it. Don't consider it. Don't, well, you know, it's going on around me, but I'm just going to keep my cool and say self-restrained and, and keep myself under control. And, well, you know, we'll watch a little of this, and sure, it's got a lot of that in it. And, yeah, I know that that's not right and that's sexually immoral, but I'm not all that concerned about it. Or, yeah, we'll read these books, and, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that probably isn't going on very good in these books, but we'll read them anyway because, after all, as long as I don't commit sexual immorality, I'll be okay. That is not the instruction of verse 18. Here's the instruction. Run away from it. Flee. And lest you think that perhaps I'm over-exaggerating these three simple words. I got it right. I counted this time. Last week I said three and then it ended up being four and then I look like a fool. But I can look like a fool. That's okay. Lest you think I am misinterpreting this, consider Joseph. Consider Joseph in the book of Genesis. Sold into slavery, which is not a, a great position to be in. Finding himself finally in a comfortable situation in that he has been entrusted as the manager of all of Potiphar's affairs of his household. Now, if you're a slave, there are really bad scenarios to find yourself in. And then there are, I'm a slave, but this one's not so bad, you know? If you've got to be in slavery, Joseph's version in Potiphar's house is the one I would prefer. He is basically a steward, which by his own account, he says Potiphar did not deprive him of anything, did not even check the counting books. Joseph could have been pilfering and, 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 and slowly, you know, extorting all of Potiphar's funds away for his own measure. You know, he could have been embezzling Potiphar, and Potiphar wouldn't have even known. The, the context is, he might not have even cared because Joseph was doing such a good job with his affairs, and he was prospering. This is a good spot to be in. And Potiphar's wife, perhaps enticed by Joseph, the rising star of the household, perhaps enticed by Joseph, the better manager of affairs than Potiphar, the guy she married was. I don't know. But while Potiphar's out and about his business, she begins to say, come lie with me. Come lie with me. And Joseph says, no, I don't want to lie with you. And he tells her, 
Your husband has been great to me. He's given, and if I wanted women, he would probably let me have them. He says, but, but I'm not going to lie with you. I'm not going to do that. And one day while they're alone, perhaps feeling spurned, perhaps feeling upset, angry, she grabs his cloak, lie with me. And he flees and he runs. And even in ancient culture, a naked man running out of the house raises the attention of everyone in the community. I don't, uh, my neighbors are fairly close, and I don't think any of them could get away with that without me wondering what in the world is going on over there. And now someone must give an account for why Joseph has been seen by the servants and the neighbors running out of the house naked. And she has to give an account because she was the only one in the house, and his clothes are there. And she says, he, he tried to make a move on me. And plan B of this move was to run away naked, I guess. And, but, uh, but that's what happens. And you know what? Joseph gets thrown in prison. Because what's Potiphar going to do? Not believe his wife? Wreck his home? To save a slave? What's he going to do? Play the victim whose wife is moving around behind his back and look like a fool, so Joseph goes to jail. And you know how Genesis chapter 39 ends? It ends with this. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. So by my reckoning, you've got to make a choice in these situations. Who do you really want to be with? God or someone else? The Lord is with Joseph. Point number six. Sexual immorality is a violation of one's own body. This is very eloquent. But Paul writes this in verse 18. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Sexual immorality is a violation of one's own body. Every other sin that you commit, it, it, it's, it's a spiritual offense. Okay, if I lie, that's a sin outside the body. It, it's a, that is a sin against God. It's a spiritual offense. You know, if I strike someone in the face, yeah, I'm using my body, but this is a, <laughs> that, that, the, the offending party is not my hand. It's, the, it's an outside the body thing. It's a, it's a who we are offense. But when you commit sexual sin, it is so tied to who we are as people. It is a sin against our own bodies against our own flesh. And in that regard alone, it's unique. And you should think carefully about it. And you should run when there's a danger. Point number seven, last one. Fellowship with God comes to us at a great price. It's funny how so many of the arguments that the Bible makes for righteous behavior eventually settle at this. Here's what Paul writes in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? He's talking to Christians. If you're sitting here and you have not trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, I want you to be very clear. The Holy Spirit is not in you. You need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be saved. If you're sitting here and, and you are not a Christian, you are not a child of God, you stand with the prospect of eternal damnation and separation from God hovering over your shoulders. And time is running out. I don't care how much you have left, it's running out. But for the Christian, God blesses us by dwelling with us when we are saved. And in that sense, your body is like a temple. A temple is a place where a God dwelt. So he's making an analogy. Do you not know that your body becomes the, the temple of God when God dwells with you? And you have this Holy Spirit from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What was the price? 
Here's Leon Morris writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 commentary of his. I thought this was good. Paul does not mention the occasion or the price. He doesn't mention the occasion when you were bought or the price, but there is no need. We are immediately reminded of one who on Calvary gave his perfect life so that sinners might be purchased. By this process, a slave would save the price of his freedom, pay it into the temple treasury, and then be purchased by the God. Technically, he was the slave of the God. As far as men were concerned, he was a free man. In the Roman Empire, when a slave bought his freedom, you would think it would be like a civic affair, right? Like he would go to like a governing official and give the money and say, by the way, give this person's like his driver's license now. He's an official citizen. That's not what it was in the Roman Empire. It was a religious affair. When a slave saved up enough to buy their freedom, they would go with their master to the temple of a god. And we have excavated engravings of these events, very official engravings. And the people in the temple, the priests, the priestesses, would record that on such and such a date, this slave whose life was previously worthless, it was a theological value of human life in the Roman Empire, had purchased their belonging to this deity. And now this slave was a slave to the deity and no longer a slave to men because you couldn't be both. If you want to look this up, it was called uh, sacral manumission, if you want to read about this. Sacral manumission. There's a lot of cool archaeological things you can find about this. This is what this is talking about. Becoming free, a free man in the ancient world meant becoming a slave to God because everyone was under a God unless you were a slave to a man. Now Leon Morris goes on to write, the price paid to purchase us from the slavery to sin was no pious fiction, no make-believe story, but the very heavy price of the death of the Lord the result is to bring us into a sphere where, as far as men are concerned, we are free, but we are God's slaves. We belong to Him. He has bought us to be His own. I thought that that was really well said. Fellowship with God for sinners came at a great price. Now, in closing, I want to leave you with a few words from Jesus. Because I know that these are weighty matters. And that there is not a person in this room beyond a reasonable age who is not sexually immoral. The words of Jesus hit home and hit hard. Whoever looks at a woman with lust is an adulterer. And I know that these things are weighty. And they're hard to consider because every single one of us has a memory and a conscience. And I, I can't imagine that not every person here has some sense of shame or guilt about conduct in their life that has happened. And I want you to see in Jesus a Savior who came to free you from that guilt. So one day Jesus came back to his hometown in Nazareth and he did what all faithful Jewish people did. He went to synagogue. And the people who he had grown up with in his local synagogue said, we want you to read for us because we've heard a lot about all the stuff you've been doing abroad. And he stood up and he read something that was so insulting that they tried to stone him and they ran him out of the city. But to us, it's a very sweet thing that he read. And I want you to, I want you to hear the words of your Lord who gave his life to save you and free you from the guilt of your sin. And I mean that. I'm not talking about just the legal guilt, but I'm talking about the actual guilt and shame that you feel because of your sin. 
the Christian life is not a joyful life if you are overcome with guilt every time you think about sin. There's no freedom in that. So here's what Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stood up and announced that he was the Messiah by reading this passage from the prophet Isaiah. And in the words of the prophet, the Messiah would come to heal the brokenhearted, to preach freedom to those who were enslaved. And he is not merely talking about those who are physical slaves, by the way. If you want that argument, just turn ahead and John's gospel and see where the Jews push back and say, none of us are slaves, we're free people. And Jesus said, every man who sins is a slave to sin. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You know what? I think it is a wonderful Christian blessing that in the year of the Lord, on the day of his return, at the time of our resurrection, you and I will be acceptable to him. Acceptable. Forgiven. Not guilt-ridden human beings. And we ought to celebrate that even as we talk about things that we should harbor a deep concern and fear over. When sexual immorality is one of them. We should celebrate the forgiveness of Jesus and his ability to make sinners acceptable. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I've tried to skirt a fine line today, what's appropriate and what's not. Even to strike a balance between the seriousness of sin and the great joy of being without guilt and one of your children. It's a tough balance. Father, I pray now that your spirit will really bring it home into the hearts of your people here in a way that I I. I probably can't. That we'll, fear, that we'll feel both a, a real sense of the gravity of the weight of the sin that we see all around us in the world and that we ourselves have engaged in to some extent. And yet feeling the gravity of that, proceeding with caution, by faith we'll look towards a Savior has given his life to redeem us from sin and will do the same for any of those enslaved to sin around us who hear the gospel from our lips and who believe as we have believed. Embolden us with your spirit to be that voice. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.